Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the harvest time had come, he sent his slaves to the tenants to collect his produce. But the tenants seized his slaves and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other slaves, more than the first, and they treated them in the same way. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and get his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Now when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and lease the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the produce at the harvest time. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it's amazing in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that produces the fruits of the kingdom. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. Now when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they realized that he was speaking about them. They wanted to arrest him, but they feared the crowds because they regarded him as a prophet. This is the word of the Lord. I recently read about an event that occurred, took place during the war between the states. In the face of battle, a young man had failed, uh, and he was suddenly dragged before General Robert E. Lee. When he stood in the presence of this great man, he was literally shaking. Those who saw him said he was shaking. And the general looked this young man in the face and said, Don't be so frightened. Here you will get justice. And the young man said, That's why I'm shaking. Uh, when we come to the table of the Lord, we're not looking for justice. We're looking for mercy. We're looking for grace. Today we have another great story. The parables probably take us as close to the heart of that flesh and blood Jesus of Nazareth as anything we have. In the stories, we see the heart and the mind of Jesus. This story begins once upon a time there was a landowner. This is a Greek word, oikos despotis. Oikos is house. This is someone who owns the house and the lands. He has enough money Enough resources that he builds a beautiful vineyard, uh, plants a fence around it, puts watchtowers on it to protect it, to guard it, and then he leases it out to tenants. Dr. Brandon Scott says, whenever storytellers heard something like this, they would immediately anticipate a day of accounting. Someone who pours so much into a vineyard and then leases it out and moves away would sometime expect an accounting. Vineyards might require five years before grapes would be produced, but there will come a time of accounting. I was reading in the New Yorker magazine a few weeks ago, and there was a cartoon, one of their infamous cartoons. This one pictured a man on his stomach, face down, very dead, with a lightning bolt having come through the roof of his house, right down through the ceiling, and had pinned him to the floor lightning bolt was still there. Now there were investigators. One was taking pictures. One was sort of crouched down toward the body. And one had his little notepad and was talking to the grieving widow. 
daubing at her eyes with a kerchief, and he asked, Did he have any known enemies? I liked that one. I thought that was good. Uh, if a lightning bolt has pinned you to the floor and killed you dead, uh, did you have an enemy somewhere? And these hearers would have understood that if this landowner in any sense represents God, and it certainly did to Matthew and his understanding of the story, then you and I will be held accountable. The prayers we've already offered acknowledge the fact that all of us realize we have fallen short, we have all sinned, we all stand in need of the means of grace. Number two, I underlined here. He sent his slaves to collect his produce. Um, those who heard the story were asked, what do you think uh, this landowner will do to those who, who beat, stoned, chased away those who came for their payment? And finally, even the son of the landowner came, and he too was thrown out and killed. Uh, what do you think is going to happen? Well, they're going to find new leases. He will find new leases, and he will give to those uh, who will produce the fruit. Now, the word produce is not a really good translation here, I think, because the word fruits carries the idea so much better. Out of vineyards, one expects to get grapes, fruits. Dr. Edward Schweitzer, in his commentary, says that you have to remember that uh, this parable echoes a part of the book of Isaiah. This wonderful anthem came from the book of Isaiah, if you were looking in your program. Uh, the book of Isaiah talks about the vineyard as being Israel, but where God expected one kind of grape to grow in his vineyard, Israel, he got bitter grapes inedible, couldn't make juice from them, nothing of, of good. And he points out what the good fruits were supposed to be. Justice, that you produced bloodshed. Uh, righteousness, that you produced a cry from those who've been mistreated, not treated properly. Uh, you've not borne good fruits. Uh, we believe we Gentiles were welcomed into that vineyard of God that through Mary's child Jesus, whom we acknowledge to be our Christ, our Messiah, we've been invited into the vineyard, and hence we too will be held accountable for the fruits. Have we been just? Have we been righteous? Have we been impartial in the way we deal with people, treating all the children of God as nearly the same as we can? They don't they don't all need the same answer. They don't all need the same thing. But loving all of them as fellow brothers and sisters here, as, as our brothers and sisters, as children of, of the one God, have we been just in any sense? Jenny Gabroff uh, recently was reviewing several different books from the past year, and she said this seems to have been the year of deprivation. She said one of the best-selling books was about one year of living biblically. And the fellow who decided to live biblically a whole year was not a theologian, not a seminary professor, not even ordained clergy or rabbi. A person who decided he would read the Bible and do whatever it told him and not do whatever it told him not to do. It was a long and miserable year for his family, at least. Uh, he didn't shave, didn't cut his hair, didn't bathe much, uh, treated his wife the way he thought the Bible was saying she ought to be treated, making life really difficult for her for one period every month. Uh, just the horrible things that he was sort of doing to his own family, and finally the year ended. 
One year of living biblically, a year of deprivation. Another book was A Year of Living Without Made in China. A woman decided that she was not going to buy anything last year if it said made in China. That she had had it with all these Chinese products, uh, lead in the paint and all sorts of things, so she was not buying anything that said made in China. And she wrote a whole book about it because she had a really tough time finding enough stuff that was not made in China. And another was simply called uh, Don't Buy It. I'm not buying it. This woman admitted that she loved to shop. She would shop at the drop of a hat, always had her credit cards handy, and for one whole year she would buy nothing that was not absolutely necessary for the life and well-being of her family. Nothing. She went into shop after shop and mall after mall and for 365 days bought nothing. But Jenny Yabrock was saying, is this really the way life is supposed to be lived? deprivation, depriving yourself of something? She left the question for the readers of the Wall Street Journal, but I think Jesus' parable would say uh, no far and more important than depriving yourself is being sure you're producing the fruits, the fruits of the vineyard, the fruits of the kingdom, justice and righteousness that needs so desperate to roll down like mighty waters. That. Number three. This story then says, well, guess what? Since you haven't produced the grapes that I really expected, I'm going to take the vineyard from you and give it to somebody else. Uh, We don't like to face up to that kind of accountability most of the time. We don't like the consequences of our actions. Remember I told you 27 years ago when I arrived here that that we're told the church will endure to the end of time. But no particular location is mentioned in that statement. And you and I know churches that today have nightclubs in them. They've been sold. They've become nightclub. Uh, In Europe, you see great churches who no longer have enough people going to them to keep them up, and they have washeterias where once they had Sunday school classes and nurseries for their children. Uh, You can plug your euros in and wash your clothes. Uh, You can put in your British pounds and wash your clothes in the church. So the church will endure to the end of time, but no particular location is mentioned there. And that first year we used as a theme for our Estimates of Giving campaign, uh, a fist like this with a bird's head sticking out the top. Remember that old story? about a very wise man who was answering people's questions one day when suddenly a young man came up and raised his fist up out of the crowd with this bird's head sticking out and asked, Oh man, you who are so wise, is this the bird dead or alive? And the old man knew that if he said the bird is alive, the kid would pinch his neck and he would be dead. And if he said the bird's dead, the kid just open his hand, the bird would fly away. So he said, As you will, my son, as you will. And that was the theme of our first giving campaign here. That we were going to live on whatever you chose to give. We had to close down one wing of the building or whatever. We would do that if we had to uh, send some of our ministers packing to some other place or get rid of a secretary or two. That's what we would do because we were going to live on whatever you gave. I wasn't going to pound you about that. I wasn't going to squeeze you about that. I was going to give you opportunity once a year just to think about it, pray about it, write a a number on your card. And that's what we've done 
Uh, we have to be accountable. To be accountable if this part of the church of Jesus Christ will endure uh, to the end of time. Dr. Robert Gorell, new pastor at the Church of the Servant, United Methodist in Oklahoma City, recently wrote to his congregation that his wife Prudy was out of town well, one, one weekend, and he decided when he wasn't at church and wasn't working, he could do whatever he wanted to. And that meant stretching out on the couch and watching television with his favorite chip and dip and soft drink. And he said the only thing he could find on that was of any interest whatsoever was Jurassic Park. Uh, Jurassic Park 3 was the one he was watching. I didn't make it to 3. I didn't make it to 2. I went to the first one. And that was enough Jurassic Park for me. But uh, Dr. Gorell was talking about Jurassic Park. And he finally got back to two and back to number one. Remember in number one, this is a story about some scientists who found some DNA and have decided to bring back the age of the dinosaurs. And so on an island, they now have dinosaurs, including a T-Rex. And they go down there, and there's a terrible rainstorm and thunder and lightning, and it gets dark, and they're running around the island in an SUV, and the T-Rex is after them. And if you recall... What you see at that point is through the right-hand mirror on the SUV. And as you're looking, the camera's aimed at that mirror. And so you're seeing the T-Rex right behind them, and you see the little words that are on your mirror, too. Objects may be larger than they appear. You know. They may be closer than they appear. Be very careful. And sure enough, the T-Rex eats two or three of them. And in uh, Jurassic Park 2, he ate several more. In Jurassic Park 3, he ate several more. And... Dr. Gorell was saying, you see, we want to unleash these monsters of ours into the world and not face the consequences. We unleash these monsters and we don't want to face the consequences. Uh, Dr. Gorell has been interested in, for some years in the chemical dependency programs and is trying to make Church of the Servant even more aware of the great number of people who are chemically dependent. And in this same article to his people, after talking about consequences, he quoted a book written by a woman whose last name is Fishline, and she was contending that even alcoholics can drink in moderation if you know how to do it. And in her book, she was telling you how to drink in moderation, even if you're an alcoholic. But almost by the time the book was printed and started to sell, she had left her own program. And one night, she made a wrong turn onto a one-way street she hit a car head-on, killing the driver and a small girl. She was arrested. She had a half-empty, half-full bottle of vodka on the front seat beside her, and her blood alcohol was three times what it should have been for her to be intoxicated. We unleash our monsters into the world, Dr. Burrell was saying, and we don't want to face the consequences. Well, if you do not bear fruits of the kingdom then we'll have to turn to somebody else. Get somebody else who will bear the fruits of the kingdom. Number four. Guess what? They figured out he was talking to them. But the truth is he was not just talking to them. He was talking to anybody who heard him. And when Matthew wrote these words, he was certainly trying to have Jesus speak to his community. And if you and I read them today, we should be reading them as people of Tulsa, Oklahoma, these words are to you and me, very much to you and me. How do we understand ourselves to be living in the kingdom of God? How do we understand ourselves to be behaving? How do we understand ourselves to be bearing fruits of the kingdom of God? 
last mon uh, Sunday late, I drove to Putnam City and again on Monday late to preach two nights at our Putnam City United Methodist Church. I'd been there 10 years before and 12 years before, and now they were inviting me back for a third time. Uh, they have a different pastor than they had the two times before, but this woman is really doing a good job, it seemed to me. I really I came home telling Gail, the worship service was wonderful. They sang Methodist music that I knew, and they had prayers that I recognized and seemed to be speaking to the same God that I think I'm speaking to. And they didn't do it for an hour and a half before they introduced me and gave me my turn. So I appreciated that very much. I really felt uh, Norma had that church going well. Well, I also met their director of youth there, a young woman named Cheryl Pickens. And Tuesday night, uh, as I was shaking hands with everybody just before I got in the car to come home, uh, Cheryl said she wanted to send me something by email, didn't want to take up any more of my time. So the next day it arrived. It was a story about a class in youth ministry. A professor that seemed to be pretty harsh with the class all year because he perceived that these people who were learning about youth ministry really didn't like youth. He kept saying, you see them as the enemy. You keep seeing them as the enemy. They need kindness. They need encouragement. They need help. But the students wanted to know, how do we deal with those who are not kind and sweet and on the up and up? How do you deal with those problem youth? And so... Every time there was a discussion time, it was about problem kids and problem youth and how do we deal with this one and how we deal with that one. And the professor kept saying, they're not the enemy. And then came time for the final exam. And Cheryl's story said, we arrived at class that morning. She said, I was trembling in my boots from the way this professor had taught. I wasn't sure how he might grade. And as he walked in the room, he reminded us that the first day of class, he had told us we'd be responsible for everything in the book, whether we covered it in class or not. And there were several chapters we really hadn't dealt with. But I remembered that he had said that. Now I was even more frightened than ever. We all got to our chairs. And he came around the room, putting exam in front of each one of us and saying, do not turn this over till I give the signal. Do not turn this over till I give the signal. You'll all begin at the same time. And when all the exams had been passed out, face down, the professor said, begin. And they turned them over. She said she couldn't believe what she saw. Every question had the answer written in. She thought at first maybe it was a mistake. And she glanced across the aisle, and this person was looking just as unbelieving as she. Each and every exam, every question had been answered. And when she got to the last page down near the bottom, there was a note that said, you have just made an A in your final exam. Because the one who created this test decided to give all the right answers. And I thought today the most important thing was... Then he paused and said, I've never given an exam like this before and probably never will again, but I wanted you to experience grace. 